We are in Mark chapter 5 this morning, as Pastor Nathan read. Mark chapter 5. And I have to be honest with you, I'm a little bit disappointed in myself, uh, because we are only in Mark chapter (laughs) 5. And maybe that's my very naive spirit earlier this summer when I decided we are going to preach through Mark. I thought by the time we got to part 11, which this is, we would be much further along than Mark chapter 5, but that's okay. Uh, I, we, we don't, I don't mean to, we're not going to belabor this study, but we are methodically going through the book of Mark, seeing Jesus, Jesus as the servant, as Mark presents him. All throughout this gospel, we see Jesus in action, serving and uh, touching unclean people, so to speak. And such is why we've entitled the series, Unexpected, because he comes to us and says things that uh, sort of go against the norm of what many people had come to expect or know about the Messiah. And Mark is here presenting this view of Jesus... And he's doing it in a certain way for a certain set group of people. So this morning, we go to Mark chapter 5, and we see this incredible familiar story of Jesus healing the demoniac of Gadara. You might have understood Pastor Nathan when he was reading. He said the Gergesenes, or Gersa, which is more broadly the specific city in which Jesus performs this miracle, perhaps. Uh, Gadara is more like the larger region. And here we have this stunning scene. It's given an incredible amount of detail. You'll notice that this entire account in the book of Mark covers roughly 20 verses. In the gospel of Matthew, it's around half that. Matthew chapter 8 has the sort of parallel story. Luke has it as well. And they give a lot less detail than Mark does. And that's sort of indicative of... Mark's entire approach. He's showing you that this servant, that this guy who is serving is actually the conqueror. He's the king. He's an unexpected king, but he is nonetheless the king of all of creation. Yes, even here, of demons, of dark forces, of unclean spirits, he writes. Mark, in fact, the Gospel of Mark is full of these types of encounters. If you read this Gospel, especially because of its brevity, because of how short it is, it has way more emphasis on these sort of exorcisms of Jesus dealing with demons. And it's so much so that it's become sort of a point of emphasis for this entire Gospel. And you have to remember, again, remember who is the probable audience of this Gospel. Predominantly Romans, most likely. So Jesus, in this presentation of Mark's gospel, is the verifiable, authoritative voice over demonic forces. It would have greatly resonated with an entire culture that was not only uh, addicted to demonism and Satanism, but was resonant for those who were looking for a conqueror. Here we have the conqueror, Jesus himself. Showcasing and evidencing to the world that he is the unexpected king who conquers all but does it through service. Who does it through touching these unclean folks. These little vignettes, these little scenes with demons affirm that Jesus is the king. And also I want to state that these interactions with these demons were real 
That these were real dark forces that Jesus was coming into contact with. Some in modern days have tried to swing these into other directions, these little interactions. And, but you cannot frame any of these encounters of Christ with a demon in any other way than by doing damage to his authority as the Son of God. These were real encounters with real forces of evil at play. They weren't just allegories. They're not just mere object lessons. These are real demonic forces which God and Jesus Christ has authority over. I think it's a a great trick of Satan when he can get people to believe that the spirit realm does not exist. As if there's not another realm that we cannot see than which a war is going on right in front of us, all around us. I think the devil has succeeded in that trick. In deceiving many folks to believe that that there is nothing in this world than what's in front of them. That there's no sort of thing as a spirit world or an eternity. That all we have is here and now. My friends, these are real people, and this is a real evil, and these were real events in which Christ is speaking into. And I think that's the whole point of this scene, but especially of his entire gospel. He's wanting you to take notice of the very evil of evil itself. Look at how evil this is, of how dark the forces of Satan are. G. Campbell Morgan, on this chapter, he comments that Christians make a terrible mistake when they laugh at spiritualism and treat it as a fancy. It is a reality. These are real events. There's a real war happening all around you that's raging in a realm that we cannot see. But I think also the other aspect of this is that we tend to dwell on this spiritual world uh, very wrongly at times too. It can go both ways. Either we don't believe it at all or we make up sort of these imaginations of what the spirit realm looks like. And I think that's also a great trick of Satan. That we can sort of see into this spirit realm and we, and we like those sorts of stories. Why do you think that cars slow down on the interstate to look at car wrecks? Because we like the scary things. <laughs> We like to look at macabre, grisly, gruesome things sometimes. If we can just kind of see it, where our curiosity is perked. Why else do you think that uh, uh, since in the last several or last couple decades, uh, you know what, uh, what genre of movies has $30 billion in revenue? <laughs> the horror films. We like those gruesome tales. There's something that piques our interest at it. Even though we're looking at it through, uh, with, through our hands... <laughs> We kind of like it. It's kind of, it gets our curiosity sparked. We like those grisly stories. It feels like we're peeking behind the curtain, seeing something that we shouldn't see. We're being told a secret of how the world works. We have imagined what the spirit realm looks like through books and televisions and movies, and I think much to our detriment. Because we can dwell on that and we can get consumed by it. Let me tell you, I don't think it matters at all what a demon can do and what, a look, what they look like. I read this chapter and I can tell you verifiably that Jesus has authority over demons. And that's my trust. 
That in this realm in which a war, a battle is going on between the forces of good and evil, Jesus is king. And as we see here, all he needs is to speak a word. And he has authority over those forces of evil. This is, I think, what this story shows us. It's it's not just a mere historical account of God's power. I think it's a compelling reminder of God's present power over darkness, over evil. That the darkness of our world, of our present day, stands no chance against this king. This king who has authority over this darkness. I think we'll see that this morning in four different movements of this text. Four different little scenes as the scene moves across. So in verses 1 through 5, we have our first sort of movement, which is the devastation. Look again as Mark writes. And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him. No, not with chains. Again, as Pastor Nathan referenced. This scene happens right after Jesus and his disciples have traversing across the Sea of Galilee. And have endured this terrible storm. As it says in chapter 4. This great storm of wind. Again, as we mentioned, as Pastor Nathan mentioned, he's seeking rest. He's been laboring in ministry for an entire day. And so he says to his disciples, let us cross the sea and let us get some solitude and some quiet. And he goes over seeking rest. And that is exactly what he did not find. (laughs) Because he goes there and he's immediately thrust into ministry once again. It says immediately. It's the word for this entire gospel. It's, it's straightway. There's a sense of urgency to the story. And he says immediately Jesus is met by this man from the Gadarenes or from Gersa. This man with an unclean spirit. He's controlled by these forces. He's controlled by them. And so right away we can see how can Jesus not get involved How can Jesus not minister to this unloved, alone man, he who loves the unlovable? And as he says himself later on in the chapter, verse 19, because of his compassion, it says, The Lord hath done this for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. This is why he loves this man and heals him, because of his great compassion. But look at this this demoniac's truly devastating life. It's an awful description of him, is it not? This man with unclean spirit, as it says in verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not even with chains. They couldn't secure him. They couldn't control him. And he's totally alone. His dwelling place, his home, so to speak, is among these tombs. He's totally alone. He's isolated. And he's being forced into that isolation, not only because of the unclean influences in which he lives under, but because now he has made his dwelling place among the unclean, among corpses, among the tombs. He is literally and ritually an outcast, separated and isolated from society. And this isolation no doubt furthers his madness. And his madness so much so that they can't even tame him. Look again. 
It says, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. Verse 4, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. He's raging mad. He's uncontrollable. His will and his spirit is unrestrained because of the forces of these unclean spirits. No man can subdue him. No man can tame him. He's uncontrollable. He was shredding these chains. Just think of that. They are trying to bind him. And it says that he has torn them asunder. They had no power over him. He was shredding them completely. He's unsafe. Such else is why he is made to live alone. Live among the tombs. He is unsafe to society. We cannot keep you under control. So just go out there. Live by yourself. And here also in that loneliness. He is ravaged by these unclean spirits. Imagine being close to this. And listening as it says in verse 5. Always night and day. He was in the mountains and the tombs. Crying and cutting himself with stones. He's wailing at his life, mutilating himself because his entire being is being tormented by these unclean spirits, being taunted and tortured by them. This description of what you can call his existence is not in any way a life, it's bereft of life, it's devoid of any sort of hope. He's alone and he's mad and he's being ravaged by the devil. This entire description, I think, I think it does also picture for us Satan's scheme for us. This little scene, this little description, this is what Satan's plan would look like if fully realized. You would be alone and you would be under his control, raging mad. This is what evil produces when it's given full reign over a person. His goal, Satan's goal, is to destroy and distort God's image in you. Such is what this man was being suffered, being made to endure. This distortion of God's imprint on him. This is what the devil does. Through temptation and through his deception of us. Just like this man. He deceives and he destroys us into a self-destruction of sin. This is what we are fighting against. This cunning of Satan through subtlety and through craftiness as we read throughout the scriptures. He tempts men to inflict their own ruin. And he wrecks our purpose and our peace through this power of sin. Which ravages hearts and lives. And this is what's truly devastating. Did you notice that these locals have no ability to restrain this man? They cannot even control him. They cannot tame him, it says. And this is what's truly devastating. Evil cannot be solved by an external force or an external restraint that we impose. You are powerless to control the own evil of your heart. You are just as powerless as these locals. That you cannot control or tame the the old nature that lives inside you. 
Isn't that interesting that through all the advancement our society has made in science and technology and industry and medicine, there is one thing that we still cannot tame and we cannot ever tame, human nature. You can take away certain things, (laughs) human nature will find a way. He will find a way to do what his soul craves. To do what his heart desires. If he is uh, after a certain scheme or a certain plan, he will find a way. Because that's human nature. It's outside of our control. Sin and Satan are outside our ability to restrain in ourselves. We cannot do this. Just like these locals who are trying to tame him, we have no ability to tame our own nature. Nothing apart from God's intervention. Nothing apart from God intervening and invading and interrupting our lives. Are we able to control our lives? And such is the point that in this devastation, that's where we have to start. Conquering evil starts right there in the recognition of your own devastation. That you cannot do it. That you do not have the power to overcome this evil. But there's one who does. And that's the next movement. Because along with this devastation, look at verse 6. We have here, beginning through, down through verse 13, the deliverance. Because here, Jesus comes and speaks to this man who is in such a devastating portion of his life. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice, and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, of the Most High God? I abjure thee by God, that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was, a, there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand and were choked in the sea. So we're told here that this this man with the unclean spirits, he runs up to Jesus and we're told in verse 6 that he worships him. This, of course, is not anything remotely entertaining real worship or honor. It's a derogatory, it's told in a derogatory sort of demeaning way. He's not really worshiping him and you can see that from exactly what the demons say through this man. What have I to do with thee, Jesus? What are you doing here? Why are you having any business here on this side of the sea? And he affirms Jesus' name, but it's affirming with contempt. He says, thou son of the most high God. But notice also what he says, because this is very important. He says, I adjure thee, or implore, or I command thee. Literally, the demons are, are trying to assert power over the Son of God in this very conversation. They are trying to control the entire encounter and such is the outrageous disrespect of evil. It tries to take control out of Jesus' hands. But look at Jesus' approach. 
Because look at verse 9. He asked him, what is thy name? You know, commentators differ on what he's trying to do here. Is he speaking to the demons their name or is he speaking to the man? Is he trying to uh, figure out the name of the demon so he can perform an exorcism? Or is he trying to uh, speak to the man and remind him of his humanity? I tend to lean towards the latter. That he's asking the man his name. Seeking to remind him that this moment in which he has been ravaged by demons that have seeked to uh, tear away his personality and his identity, that's not who he is. But the demons speak up. They say, my name is Legion. They have total control over him. Even as Jesus is trying to remind him of his personality, he can't even speak but for the demons speaking for him. And they say, my name is Legion. Of course, which is a Roman Latin term meaning 6,000 men. It's sometimes believed that there were 6,000 demons afflicting this man. But nevertheless, Jesus is speaking to him. Reminding him that these unclean spirits were not his identity. They had stolen it from him. They had stolen who he was. And such is why in verse 8 he reminds him that he has no power over this man. That the devil is only a visitor here. He cannot dwell. Look at verse 8. He says, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. See, he doesn't say legion, come out of him. He has power over all the demons, whether he names them or not. He can speak and all creation listens. Yes, even including evil. Evil has no authority in this scene. Evil has no power. Because Jesus is here. The deliverer has come. They wanted Jesus to bow to him. We adjure you, listen to us. And Jesus bows to no man. He bows to nothing in this entire universe. But I think it's fascinating in this text that the demons are granted their request. Did you notice that? They are uh, here and they implore Jesus, don't send us away out of the country. Or in another translation, means out into the void. They say, give us another body or life to live in. And so they beg for a new host and Jesus grants it in these pigs. <laughs> It's an unusual turn of events. He's performing an exorcism and now 2,000 pigs are drowning in the sea. (laughs) It's odd. It's quite interesting. And I think it struck me that this inclusion of pigs is so uh, out there, so to speak. But I think it shows us, in in an interesting way, that this is Satan's influence over man. He makes man, God's beloved creation, no better than pigs. Because the demons are happy whether they're in this man or whether they're in swine. And this is what happens. Satan doesn't care what you are or who you are. He will make you like a pig. Devoid of God's image. Devoid of God's purpose. He debilitates and devours what God has made. And yet this is exactly who Jesus has come to reclaim and restore. By speaking his life into them. 
And that's what I love about this scene. Because Jesus himself, the embodiment of God's holiness on earth, is unafraid and not turned away by this man's uncleanness. Instead, he demonstrates his power over this man's uncleanness by just being there himself. He's there in the presence of this unclean man who's being ravaged by these spirits. And he speaks into him. And he gives him his life back. God's grace and power can consume all of our contamination. It's strong enough to ward off all of the forces of sin and darkness. Nothing can stop this mission of the King Christ. Not even evil itself. Not even the very evil of evil can thwart this mission of revelation and redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. But that's what leads us to the third movement here. Starting in verse 13. Because we have the disaster and the deliverance. But, or the, the devastation and the deliverance. But the third movement is the disaster. Because look at what happens. So verse 13, Jesus sends them, gives them leave, it says, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. And they were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was, what it was that was done. And they come to Jesus And see him that was possessed with the devil and had the lesion sitting and clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they saw it. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil. And also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Again, this story has taken an interesting turn. He's performed this exorcism. And now these demons plead and implore Jesus, give us these pigs for new hosts. And he grants that request. I wrote down this note. It's probably not very theological. But in this scene, I I think Jesus would surely be attacked by PETA for what he did. He let them kill 2,000 pigs. And you see, that's exactly what these men are concerned about. Did you notice? That this te- Imagine the headline Peter would have afterwards. That this teacher heals. This teacher from Navalis heals. But at what cost? <laughs> at what cost to our swine? <laughs> Certainly the herdsmen thought that. They go back to this, sweaty, this city and they go back and they tell all of those in the city what had happened. Surely they're concerned for their jobs. Surely they go back to the swine owners and say, look, you have to imagine this conversation. Look what what happened. Okay, we were just minding our own business. And then this guy comes and these demons enter our pigs and they just ran off into the cliff and they drowned. We swear that's what happened. (laughs) I imagine that conversation being very interesting. But then all these men from the city, they come back and they see, they want to see what had happened for themselves. They're curious what really happened. Now, I was reading commentaries about this scene. I didn't know that there was an ethical quandary happening with these pigs. And some commentators spend a large amount of time, whether it was justified for Jesus to kill pigs or not. 
I think a lot of time is wasted on such ethical questions because that's the, the true disaster of this story, folks, is not the loss of all that bacon. It's the fact that these men wanted to pray him out of their coasts. Look at verse 17. They see all this happens. They hear this amazing story. And what is the reaction? They're afraid and they pray, it says. They pray, Jesus, leave our coast. Depart. We don't want you here. We don't want any part of what you're trying to do. How sad. This to me is the saddest verse in this entire scene. That these men. Who hear this grand news of a deliverance from the forces of Satan himself. Are then having this callous nature come over them and say please leave. We don't want you here. It's very telling that in verse 16 it says. Look at it again. Verse 16. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed of the devil. And also concerning the swine. You see, that they are very interested in their pigs. <laughs> they report that too, not just the demon. They report also, and all of our pigs drowned. These men of the country were caring more for their business and economy than welcoming this King Christ into their midst. Such is why they tell him to depart, that this deliverance was bad for business. And that's the disaster of this story. That in the presence of horrific evil, in the deliverance from that evil, they tell grace himself, leave. They tell the king, please depart. They beg him to go. They beg him to leave. That's the disaster. But there's something even better because look at verse 18 through verse 20. Because even better than that, in the fourth movement of our text, we have the dominion. Look at verse 18. And when he was coming to the ship, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him. He begged him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in the Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Now there's a few oddities, odd little details that sort of close this story. Of course it's filled with little oddities. But here this rescued demoniac is now being denied to follow Jesus. It's interesting that he doesn't allow this man who has been so delivered from this evil forces. He's been so stirred by this miracle that has happened in his own life. And he desires to follow Jesus and yet he's denied Instead, he's charged with telling his story. And that's the other oddity, because in verses 19 and 20, we are told that he has been charged to tell his story to all of his friends. And we're told that he goes to the Decapolis, which is a sort of region with ten cities. And he publishes it throughout all of those cities. It's a... I think a, a little nod to how, prof, how, how prosperous he was in ministry. He was prolific in sharing this news with all of the men. As it says, all of them did marvel. 
But I have, you have to ask, because as we've seen already in a couple chapters, how often Jesus has hindered those from telling people who he was. Remember in chapter 1, verse 41, he heals the leper. And he charges him, chapter 1, verse 43, and he straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away not to say anything to any man. What makes the leper's deliverance different than the demoniac's? It's curious, right? Why would he silence that man but give this man free charge to publish broadly what has happened to him? Well, I think you have to see and know that this, uh, this region of Gadara was largely Gentile in, na- in nature. So therefore, they weren't sort of brimming with this, uh, this political sort of uneasiness of yearning for a Messiah. They weren't seeking any sort of deliverance. They had no such prophecy for them. The Jews, they would have seen Jesus and say, he has come to save us from Rome. And here these Gentiles would say, he has saved us. And that's it. There's the big difference. They weren't pining for a Messiah. These hearers would have heard this good news and heard it for what it was. It was grace itself come to them. But I think such is Jesus' point here. His domain, his kingdom is stronger and more powerful and more expansive than you can ever imagine. And he is the king of it all. He is the king over all of it. And evil bows to him. Evil is powerless in his presence. You know, we were, we're studying this book on Wednesdays. Here's my commercial for Wednesday nights. We're studying a book called Consider Jesus by Octavius Winslow. He's a writer back in the 1800s. And he's writing this book which functions as a daily devotional through Jesus' life. And we were reading this past week. And I came across this little paragraph... And I loved it so much that I wanted to share it with all of you too. Because he writes, this is so perfect. Winslow is writing, cheer up. Your great adversary is wounded. Deadly wounded. You have to do with a conquered foe. Ever under the control of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you yourself shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. You don't have an evil in which you cannot overthrow. Why? Because Jesus has already overthrown him already. Your foe is not just wounded, as he says. He is conquered. Jesus asserts that he is the conqueror. He is the the coming king who is going to lay waste to all of Satan's forces. Such is what he does here. And such is what he did on the cross. And such is what he will do one day when he comes back on that white horse. Comes back as the king and the judge. And everyone will have to bow and know that he is king. You see, in Jesus, that's already happened. With God, that's already a reality. You're fighting against forces of evil, yes. But it's evil that's already been made to lose. It's evil that's already been defeated. You have a a, a lion that's hunting you, that's devouring you, that's seeking to devour you, as 1 Peter 5.8 says. But he's been defanged and declawed by Jesus himself. He has no power over you. You are more powerful than Satan. Why? Because Jesus is in you. 
His spirit is in you. And Jesus is stronger than Satan. Remember that story from chapter 3 verse 27? Where Jesus is telling you this prophecy about himself. So verse 27 of chapter 3 reads, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man. And then he will spoil his house. This is that scene in real life. Jesus is the stronger man who has entered Satan's domain and bound Satan up to spoil his domain. Jesus is the stronger man. He is the one who, uh, who spoils Satan's scheme by conquering all of evil and darkness in himself. By consuming it in himself. He's stronger than Satan. Your savior, your king is stronger than evil. He has dominion over everything. He can take whatever he wants. He can reclaim and redeem whoever he desires for his purposes and for his will. Why? Because Jesus is king. Jesus is our king. He's the king over everything. He's the conqueror of all. He's the defeater of sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he's consumed your sin and death in his own. He is your king. Or we might have to ask, is Jesus your king this morning? Is he king of your heart? Has he reclaimed you from darkness? Or are you still living in the throes and the trappings of your own evil? Of the evil that resides in your old nature? This morning... Jesus can speak, you can pray, and he is your king this morning. And you will have a conquered foe. There is nothing too powerful for this king. There is no sin that is greater than God's grace. There is no sin that is greater than God's power to save. Because he has control over everything. Because he is our king. Let us pray this morning.